Okay, you guys, we're uh, going to step away from Mark's gospel, and we're going to step into a four-week Advent series, um, as Dan kind of laid out. We're going to look at what Christmas means and why it matters. And I was thinking, like, we, we could look at this uh, from a theological perspective, which, which we will. I mean, we're going to get into the text, but I, I more importantly want to look at this from an existential perspective, from the shoes that we walk in, and, and ask the, uh, the, the question, like, what is Christmas? And why does it matter? You know, from the, from the vantage point that I think if we're really dishonest, and we had to do an assessment of, of, of humanity today, you know, I think we'd have to ask questions like, what's wrong with us? You know, why is humanity such a mess? Why all the conflict, the violence, why all the hurt, the abuse? Why all the angst, why the worry, the restlessness, the discontentment, the dissatisfaction, the despair, the meaninglessness? Why the ache that we talked about last week, the, this, this inner ache? I think J.R. Tolkien, uh, he says this, and I'm just going to leave this up uh, during the whole sermon in case you get bored, you have something to look at. But he says, we all long for Eden and we are constantly looking for it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its kindest and most human is still soaked with the sense of exile. We long for Eden and our existence is still soaked with, with, with this sense of exile. And I think J.R. Tolkien, in that one sentence, summed up the Bible's answer to the human condition. Uh, we are in a place where we long for Eden. We long for the home for which we were made. And the whole Bible is a story about this home. It, it's a story about how we lost it. And, and it's a story about what God is going to do to restore us to it. And so this morning, we're going to start this series, um, this Advent series, by looking at the first chapters of the Bible, and on Christmas Day, we'll end with the last two chapters of the Bible. If you have your Bible, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. I really didn't know where to start this week. You know, I could have started in verse 1. I could have even gone back to chapter 2. Um, I decided to start with chap verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3, but we'll be going back to chapter 2 and other parts of chapter 3 that we're not going to read right now. Uh, but let's stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 3. Starting with verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and it was pleasing, it was desirous to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, if you want to know how this really reads, who is standing right next to her. I don't know if you always picked up on that. Sometimes we think Adam was way off over there, but he was right next to her. And she gave some to her husband who was, who was standing next to her, and he ate it. And when the eyes of both of them were open, they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man, 
where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman that you put here with me, it's her fault. She gave me, I know, we have to almost chuckle at this, right? (laughs) She did it. So I ate it. And the Lord God said then to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And so I ate. And now going down to verse 22. The Lord God then made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. You can be seated. So I know if we've been going to church at all or reading our Bible at all, this is a story that most of us are familiar with. Um, it, it almost reads like a fairy tale, and yet it, uh, it's, it, it's real. And it's more than real. It's, it's tragic. It's, it's, it's horrific. And, and really, to, to, to see how tragic it is, you almost have to uh, go back to the first verses of Genesis, because Genesis opens by, by painting a, a very depressing picture of what is. In fact, in Genesis 1, uh, 1 and 2, the, the word that it, that it uses to describe what is, it uses words like darkness or the deep, which is another word for the abyss. Uh, the words formless and void. In Hebrew, it's tohu vohu. Tohuve Vohu is just a swirling mass of, of nothingness, emptiness, meaninglessness. Uh, it, it's chaos. And, and what creation is then, it's, it, it's God moving into all that and, and bringing about light and order and beauty and galaxies and skies and seas, rivers, forests, fields, flowers, gardens, dazzling creatures that, that fly in the air and and creatures that swim in the sea, and then land creatures, all created, the Bible says, according to their kind. And then God caps this all off by creating one that he says, I'm going to make one in the accordance of my kind. And then he says, I, I, I want a second version of that as well. And so then he takes uh, his kind, the male version and the female version, and joins them together in marriage. And then he puts them in a special place called Eden. And this is how creation ends. And over and over, the words that God uses to describe his creation is, is the word good. Now, now, good to us is, it just doesn't pack any punch. It means something less than great, but that's not what good means in the original language. It's the word tov. And, and the Hebrew word tov is, is, is everything as God intended for it to be. That's what it means, that it was good. In fact, the ancients have a synonym uh, for this word good, and it's the word shalom. And, and shalom is a word that we translate as peace 
Uh, the problem with that is peace to us is, is simply the absence of conflict, but, but, but the meaning of shalom is, is this sense of wholeness and completeness. Everything is in this perfect harmony. And it's this beautiful harmony that infuses all of creation. Adam and Eve are, are, are in harmony with themselves. They're they're in perfect harmony with each other. They're, they're in harmony with, with every aspect of creation. And as a result, there's, there's no death, there's no suffering, there's no de- decay, there's no disease, there's no poverty. There's no brokenness of any kind. Listen, we could be here all day trying to imagine such a world that we couldn't. We're so far from that. And then what Genesis wants us to know is is the basis of this harmony of of the goodness that is infused in all creation is that this world had a garden. And what makes the the garden so spectacular, um, this this spectacular place of, of peace and rest and delight and satisfaction and pleasure. In fact, that's why the garden has a name. Its, its name is Eden. This is what Eden means. It means this deep, restful delight. It means this all-satisfying pleasure. And there's two things about Eden that, that make Eden all of this, that make Eden Eden. Go to Genesis 2 and look at verses 8, 9, and 10. I really want our eyes to see all of this. And here it says, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And then in the middle of the garden, there's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then verse 10, and a river watering the garden, literally flowing into the garden, also flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters or four rivers. So Eden has two things according to this text, specific things that make it Eden. First of all, in the center of this garden is the tree of life. The tree of life is the world's power source. It's life source. All the life And the energy that is infused in the world emanates from that tree. And see, this tree represents God, it represents his presence. And we have to know that that without that tree, the lights are going to go out. It, It would be like pulling the plug out. And the world would descend back into darkness, into the tohu vevohu. So that's one feature of the garden. The second feature of this garden is that river that flows into it and then out of it. And when it flows out, it spills into four rivers to literally water the four corners of the world. Now that river is more than just water. It's living water. It's Maim Kaim. And living water in the Bible always represents God, the, the life of God, the presence of God. 
And this is why throughout the biblical story, whenever God makes his home on earth, there's always this river of Maim Kaim, of living water that's flowing out. One of my favorites is, is the vision of the final temple in Ezekiel 40 to 47. And uh, by the time you get to chapter 47, after Ezekiel uh, depicts the, this, this final temple in all of its glory, then in chapter 47, uh, he has a vision of this little trickle of water that is flowing across the temple courtyard and then makes its way down the southern stairs of the temple and then it makes its way into the Kidron Valley. And all the while, the trickle of water becomes a stream and by the time it makes its way into the desert, it's this fast-flowing, gushing river and everything the river touches just springs forth to life. And when that river finally hits the desert, the desert blooms into the glory of the Garden of Eden and even makes its way to a sea that's called dead and that sea is resurrected. And I couldn't help but get ahead of ourselves just a little bit because when we look at Revelation 21 and 22 on Christmas Day when God makes all things new, the two primary features or characteristics of God's renewed creation are this tree of life and this river of life because these two things are always present where God makes his home. And really, what made this garden a paradise? What made it Eden? This place of just deep, restful delight. This place of all satisfying pleasure is the garden had God it has it had its, his presence, his glory, his face, and that comes to us so clearly and vividly in our text. Chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Practically every commentator on this verse, Jewish and Christian, all say this was not a one-time event, but this, that this is something that happened every single day where God went out and took a walk in the garden. He took his stroll. And when it says they, they, they heard the sound of the Lord, the word for sound there literally is the word for voice. And so what you have to know every single day, uh, Adam and Eve as God made his stroll in the garden, they, they didn't just walk and talk, walk with God, but they talked with him. They, they literally heard God's voice. And then when I apply my, my whole um, understanding of, of, of seeing Christ all over the Bible, not just in our New Testament, but, but coming right back here to Genesis 3, every single day, Adam and Eve took this stroll with, with Christ. Walking, talking. And whether you know this or not, this is what we were made to do. We were, we were made to walk with God in the cool of the day, to be with him, to hear his voice. And this is where Adam and Eve are placed. They're, they're placed in this garden. And, and it's not so much for uh, life on a beach, 
It's, it, it, it's not for, for akuna matata, but God places just massive purpose upon their lives because go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Those, those verbs, to, 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 to work it and to take care of, you could also, I mean, it, it, it literally means to, to, to protect and to guard. In fact, these two, two particular verbs, whenever they are used together in the text, and it's not often, but every time they're used later in the text, it's used to describe a priest's vocation. A priest's mission is to guard and to protect. In Hebrew, it's abad and shamar. To guard and protect what? God's house. Where God lives. And the garden then is God's first home. It's his first house. And Adam and Eve are the first priests. And their vocation as priests is to guard and to protect that garden with their very lives. And even more than that, when, when, when you also add God's exhortation to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth, that means they weren't to just remain static in the garden, but they were to go out and to make the whole world a garden. As God's partner, they are to join God in being that living water, that mind kaim that flows out into all creation to the four corners of the world. So think about it. Here are two creatures made according to God's kind, made like God to worship God, to walk with God in the cool of the, the, the day, and to reflect God into all creation, to priest God, to be these streams of living water. You talk about massive purpose. And it all begins with serving and protecting God's house, his garden. And this is their failure. Because evil is lurking. It's lurking in the garden. And instead of protecting God's house and staying true to God and remaining faithful to God's word, instead they submit to evil, they give in to their desires, and evil wins. And the implications of this are massive. But before I talk about them, I want to talk about God's garden. The holy places today where God promises to make his home. And I want to start with, with, with the garden of marriage in the home because God's first garden is, is represented by marriage between Adam and Eve. Marriage and, and family is a God-instituted garden where God wants to live. And so husbands and wives... Are you guarding and protecting the garden of God? Are you priesting? Are you protecting and serving this garden? What are you letting into the garden? Is God's word being held up? Is it being held to? Are you walking with God as husband and wife? 
in the cool of the day with Christ. The church is another garden. The Bible over and over again says we are his temple. We are all priests, which is why more and more as I just uh, think about what that means, it makes me uh, dispassionate towards politics. Because politics and politicians are concerned with a world out there. It's a priest's vocation to tend to God's house. This is why it was said about Jesus, zeal for God's house would consume him. That's why Jesus acted the way he did, as we looked at it last week, uh, in the temple, uh, what he's doing there when he's driving out the money changers and uh, cleansing it. He is protecting his father's house. Are we? Let's stop being so concerned with the world out there. Let's talk about this house. What here needs to be guarded, protected, cleansed? Or how about this one? Our bodies. The New Testament makes it very clear that, that our bodies are the garden of God, that God literally makes his home in us. I mean, that alone is a phenomenal thought. And I'll be the first to, to confess that my body is so broken, and I'm not even just talking about in physical ways. I'm talking about all of its carnal desires, and I know that those desires aren't going away anytime soon. It means I have to be a priest. I have to guard this temple. I have to guard what goes in. When evil lurks, I need a priest. I was thinking about this uh, children's song this week that I was taught when I was younger. Well, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Well, be careful, little eyes, what you see, for the Father up above is looking down in love. Well, be careful, little hands, what you take in. Well, be careful, little feet, where you go, for the Father up above is looking down in love. Adam and Eve failed. They failed to guard the garden of God. And that's why uh, our text opens uh, with verse 8. Then the man and his wife, when they heard the sound of the Lord God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. God comes walking to them. He comes seeking them out. And, and in fact, walking in the Bible is more than just a physical activity that someone does. Uh, walking in the Bible uh, connotes relationship. And so God is, 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 is seeking relationship uh, with, with Adam and Eve. And when he says these words, where are you? Uh, this isn't God just wondering about Adam and Eve's whereabouts. This is God asking, like, what happened? Something tragic happened. And God is coming to talk with them to, to restore the relationship. Let's talk about this horrible thing that's happened. As, as Isaiah says, come let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. But instead, Adam and Eve hide 
And I think this is the essence of sin. The essence of sin is, is not just breaking the rules. The essence of sin is running from a God who actually wants relationship uh, with us. It, it's thinking that we can actually do life without God or that my life would be a whole lot better if God wasn't in it. And this is one of those moments where I just can't help but wonder would things have gone differently if, if Adam and Eve uh, had taken full responsibility for their sin, if, if, if in this moment they just uh, looked at God and said, God, we are so sorry. Like we blew it. We gave in. We repent. We'll never know how God would have responded to that. Instead, Adam blames his wife. Eve, Eve then blames the snake. They're throwing each other on the, under the bus to justify themselves. And now we see spin, uh, sin just kind of spinning out of control. And the result of this is tragic. Look at verse 24. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. I mean, this word for sent out is, is, is the word banished. It's, it, 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 it's the word for exile. Adam and Eve have, have lost the garden. They lost home. They are now homeless exiles. And just stop and think for a minute just about home and, and, and what home is. And even if you come from a bad home, I think we all still know deep in our hearts of what home is supposed to be. I mean, home is supposed to be that place where we're nurtured, where we're, we're known, where we're loved, where we're cared for. It's the place where we are to thrive. It's the place when we make a mess out of our lives, we are to be restored. And Adam and Eve are sent out from this. So don't just envision in your mind that, that they're leaving this tropical paradise. Uh, in this moment, they just became homeless. They're, they are now exiles. And I was thinking this week how often this, this, this picture of exile um, just is, is, is kind of in the news. And it, it's not even a reality that's out there in different parts of the world, but it's actually local. It's, it's, it's something that we see often, uh, the refugee crisis that, that is going on in our world, the homeless crisis. I mean, it's a painful picture. It's a devastating picture. It's, it, it's one that should cause the church to weep and yet Genesis 3 is, is here to teach us that as Adam's offspring, that we are all exiles. We're all homeless. And this whole condition uh, that, that Genesis 3 describes, it, it, it doesn't discriminate between races or genders or economic status. In fact, uh, it, it's very egalitarian. We are all cut off. We are all exiles. We are all alienated from the garden. And not only does Genesis 3 make that known, but it also spells out the implications of this. I mean, first, we're just cut off from, from the very environment for which we are made. Look at verses 17 and 18. You get strong hints of this. When God says, curse is the ground because of you, through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. 
So the, the curse that, that now uh, infects the world, that infects uh, the natural order, um, work is not the thing that, 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 is, that makes the curse the curse, but it's the fact that now that we are working in a world and in a nature that is at enmity, there's thorns, there's thistles. Work now is hard. It's laborious. It drains us. And as hard as we want to make our world a uh, Disney world, it's not. Life is difficult. It's hard. It's, it's exhausting. It's because we're sick. Our world is sick. Disease, aging, sickness, suffering, death. You must know that these realities are not part of the world that God intended. And as much as we're told these days, and I can't even believe that we're told it, that death is natural and that it's normal and that it's beautiful and it's part of being human. And, you know, you might be able to buy into that propaganda by hearing someone lecture or maybe seeing a movie that somehow can cap capture that whole idea. But when you experience death with someone you love, you know it's not natural. You know it's not how it's supposed to be. It's because our hearts were made for a garden and we, we remember that garden and that we are here and made to live forever. That's why Romans 8 says, all creation groans as in the pangs of childbirth. Our, our, the world is in pain, it's in agony. And so there's not only alienation that, that, uh, that, that works uh, within the created order, but we're also cut off from each other. I mean, look at verse 12. You already start to see all the blaming. You start to see the division. Then you get down to verse 16. And you start to see that that harmony between husband and wife, uh, that they are a long way from the garden. And she goes, Adam and Eve now, they're, they're alienated from each other. And, and then this alienation, it's going to spill into their family. We're already in the very next chapter, chapter 4. Brother's going to actually kill his brother. And then it's going to spill into every relationship. The genders are alienated. Races become alienated. Generations are alienated from each other. And just look at our world today. I mean, it's convulsing. Nation against nation, race against race, gender against gener gender, generation against gen generation. In fact, there's, there's passion behind this division. There's, there's enmity. And why is this? The Bible tells us we're not home. We're cut off. We're exiles. And see, then this alienation gets very personal because we are also, through this, cut off from our true self, from that glorious self which was to be the perfect reflection of God himself. And now we are left with a self that is turned on itself, a self that can't get outside of itself. A self that, look at in verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In verse 10, uh, Adam answered, God, yep, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. 
And so this, there, there's massive self-awareness going on to the point where they have to hide. And why are they hiding? Because they're naked. However, in just a few previous verses to this, creation literally ends with Adam and Eve becoming husband and wife, and it says, and they were naked, but unashamed, but now they're naked and ashamed. I mean, what changed here were, well, they're cut off from their true self, which is a pure reflection of God himself. They've literally become exiled from the greatness and the glory that God had made them to be, and they know it. And this scene, when you, when you take it in, it's so sad because they feel so deeply inadequate. They feel deep shame, and they're doing everything they can to cover up their inadequacy, to hide their shame. And guess what? The human race has been hiding ever since. This is why we cover This is why we have to control what people can see because I think deep down we know that to be loved, we need to hide. And why is this? Because we've been cut off from our true self, a self that was once free to be real and authentic. And this is why in our insecurity, we hide and present a false self. We become fake. And why we live in a culture that plays the game of fake. It's because we don't want people to see us because we have this deep sense of condemnation. And you think I'm taking this too far. Why is our culture so obsessed with appearance? Why are we so performance driven? Why are we such workaholics? Why can't we say no to people because we're afraid we're going to disappoint them? Why can't some of you date someone that you think is below you? Why are we such pleasers? Why are we such perfectionists? Why when something goes wrong, do we always feel the need to blame someone else? These are all fig leaves. We're all trying to cover this deep sense of condemnation. This is why if you feel shame today and think, why is this happening to me? You need to know that you're not alone in that feeling. This is all part of the human condition. We're not home. We lost the garden. We lost God. And in losing God, we lost everything, including ourselves. And I love Genesis 3, 8, when it says God is walking. Um, God is walking. He's, he's searching for them. I mean, to, to walk with someone. In, in the Bible, as I said, it symbolizes deep friendship and intimacy. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I love taking people to Israel. In fact, I tell everybody that, that goes with me to Israel, like Israel's just an excuse. It's, it's a good excuse, but it, it's, it's an excuse to walk together for 10 days. Because every time we do this for 10 days and we walk together, we become family. I see it in my own marriage. Libby and I are most married when we walk together. Imagine walking with Jesus every day. 
And all of a sudden now, verse 24, they are drove out. That word drove out of of, of this space and this place where they walked with Jesus is literally the word in Hebrew for divorced. They are divorced from Christ. They lost home. They lost God. They lost walking with him. And I don't think anything paints a picture of, of the alienation more than verse 22. Look at verse 22. And the Lord God said that the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life. (laughs) What God is saying here, you're not allowed to reach for that tree anymore. In other words, you're not ever going to get the life you want apart from God. We can't be satisfied apart from God. We can't experience that deep rest apart from God. We can never know Eden apart from God. And this is why we're still reaching. We're we're reaching out for love. We're reaching out for success, for glory. We're reaching out for satisfaction. We're reaching out for rest. We're reaching out for meaning. Why? We're still reaching for the tree of life. We're reaching for the garden because we can't forget what we are built for. And as hard as you and I try to make this world home, it will never be home. And this is why when we actually get our hands on the very thing that we think will finally satisfy, whether it's true love or the perfect job, the dream house or the best vacation or more money or even the perfect life, it will always disappoint. It will always let us down. In fact, we need to stop asking of this world or a piece of this world to deliver what it could never deliver. We live east of Eden, which means that there will be cosmic disappointment to anything and everything that we think will ultimately satisfy. And until you understand this, you'll be chronically angry, chronically frustrated. In fact, just look at humanity today, how it deals with its anger and its frustration. Like Adam and Eve, we still blame. We blame our parents, we blame our government, we blame Democrats, we blame Republicans, we blame our culture, we blame education and how it's broken, we blame our circumstances, we blame our bosses. And yet the Bible is here to tell us that our problem is a lot deeper than this. We're exiled. We're away from home. We're alienated from God. We're alienated from each other. We're alienated from our true self. We can't forget the glory and the greatness for which we are made. Our hearts deep down know that there is a tree, there is a God, and there is a garden. Do we even dare ask how we can be healed? How, How we can be restored to the thing that our hearts long for? The answer, Christmas. I mean, just listen to the songs this season. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. No more let sin or sorrows grow. 
nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And Christmas is that Jesus left home. He left his father and he came across all worlds to seek us, to find us in our lost and broken condition so that he could clothe us and restore us to the home for which we are made. And God, this morning, if there is someone who does not know you, I pray that they would seek you and find you. And this Christmas, God, may our hearts and the eyes of our heart be set on the one thing that our hearts desire, and that is you, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come. Come.